0: Your way back to your seats. (coughs) If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Genesis 3, verse 8. It's on page 2 in your Pew Bible. There's a Bible that's in front of you if you want to follow along there if you forgot your Bible. Or if you don't have a Bible at home, We'd love to give that one to you that's in front of you as a gift today. Just take it with you. No questions need to be asked. Genesis 3, verse 8. We've started this series on the true story of the world. We've been looking uh, the last few weeks, if you've been with us, at what it means to be a human being and all the positive uh, things that happened when God created human beings. He gave them dominion. He set His image on them. It's been very positive Uh, and last week we began to look though at Genesis 3 and the fall and we've been looking at when sin enters the world and so it's been a little more negative and that we need that too right so uh, these are not the most positive and encouraging times or things to read or talk about in sermons and yet they're so necessary to understand the good news of Jesus you have to understand the bad news of sin and death and the fall or we've called it The fall sometimes, but maybe it's better to say the rebellion, since the fall implies that there is some kind of accident sometimes. And this was clearly a decision to bring us into a rebellion against God. And so we've been looking at this. There's lots of different ways you can look at this section of Scripture. You can ask questions like, why is there a talking snake? Uh, When did this happen historically? How do we understand this? You could also look at this more theologically. Uh, as an idea and the scriptures do that in the book of Romans we're going to talk about a little bit today this idea of sin entering the world is the precursor for Christ and that he satisfies this and fills this hole that's created in the world but we've also wanted to most especially look at this as a way to understand how sin works last week we looked at how sin makes us want to be like God That when sin first takes root in our lives, it makes us want to be independent of Him and why that's such a bad idea. And that today, I want to talk about how it makes us want to hide from Him, hide from His presence, which is what Adam and Eve do next in this passage. Let's read it together. Genesis 3, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. So I grew up in Mississippi, uh, down south. Many of you know that. And uh, I remember the story growing up with my friend Josh when I was young spending the night with him over the weekend. It was a Friday night, and um, his dad, Josh's dad, had just bought a brand new John Deere riding lawnmower. And in the absence of other things to do uh, in rural Mississippi growing up, the only thing to do was to take that bad boy out joyriding, which is what we did on that Friday afternoon. And there's only one seat on a lawnmower, as you may know, so I rode on the hood of, of the lawnmower and my friend was driving in the seat back and we were going crazy going as fast as we can in the yard and um, there was a ditch a little small ditch in the yard and uh, we headed for it we didn't really see it he ran over it and I was lifted up in the air just a couple of inches but I slammed back down on the top of the hood of the lawnmower with great force and with my weight underneath me, I split the top of the the hard plastic of the the mower hood. And it split right down the middle and I subsequently fell off uh, after hitting it and was run over uh, on my legs with the uh, the mower. Thankfully the blades were not down, Uh, otherwise it could have ended very badly. But anyway, we, the main thing that was broken was the mower itself. And we were ashamed of breaking this brand new green uh, John Deere. And so we hid it. We put it back in the garage where it was, but we covered it up with boxes and other things that we could find in the garage. Hiding our sin, basically. And uh, like it would make any difference, right? Right. Like, all we were doing was delaying the inevitable when his dad would come and find it, would be mowing the yard, and would see that his brand new John Deere was broken. In any case, we were utterly incapable of approaching his dad about it. Even though it was just a matter of time, there was something in us that made us unable to just go straight to him and tell him what we had done. We had to hide it even though it was only a matter of time. And I remember it. So I spent the night that night and in the morning we were sitting at the breakfast table on Saturday morning and we were eating cereal and his dad came into the room angry and said, did you break my new tractor? Which is what you call a lawnmower growing up in Mississippi. Did you break this tractor? And I just remember the silence. I actually remember slurping milk and the sound that it made in that silence as we tried to figure out was there any other way that we could hide? Right? I mean, it was so obvious. The guilt was obvious, the, the offense was obvious, and the source was obvious. But we still wanted to hide. Eventually, we did admit it, of course. But we were unable to do so without being drawn out by him, without being his attention focused on us. We would have just stayed like that Forever. And never told Him had He not approached us. That's the nature of sin that I want to talk about today is that it it causes us to go into hiding and in that hiding we have an inability to bring ourselves out to approach God. Sin by nature slinks away. It hides. It causes us to be away from the presence of God which is what it says in verse 8. Adam and Eve did. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. They couldn't just approach God. They couldn't just come to Him. They felt the inability of that. They had to hide from His presence. As He comes in in the cool of the day, this time of intimacy where they would walk with God, they were unable to do so. They couldn't just fall into step with Him. They couldn't just act like nothing had happened. It couldn't be the same. John Milton, you may know, wrote Paradise Lost, the famous story. I wonder if it, sometimes if it should have been called Presence Lost. Because that seems to be the thing that is lost that is so dear here. This loss of being with God. To be at ease with Him. To be in His presence and not fear. To be unafraid. To be unashamed. And what's so evident from this passage (coughs) is that there is no redemption from a human being perspective here. Adam and Eve are not cooperative with God at all. Like us sitting in silence and waiting to see if there's any other way that we could hide from God's presence, from His dad's presence. So Adam and Eve try to figure out any way they possibly can to hide from the presence of God, and they continue to do so. There is nothing here about their own redemption. It's all of God drawing them out of their hiding. The one who was offended, the one who was rebelled against, has to be the one that draws them out of their hiding. Here's what I want us to see today. God graciously finds us in our hiding, then draws us out. He is the one who acts first. He makes the first move towards us. He is gracious and gentle beyond our deserving. And He asks questions of Adam and Eve. That's the way that He draws them out. He asks them three questions. And you need to see already that that is gracious. That shows His grace and mercy towards them. It is not necessary for God to ask questions for a couple of reasons. The first one being that He already knows the answers. When He asks a question here, it is not because He lacks information. The other reason why He doesn't need to ask questions is that He's already told them what will happen if they were to rebel against Him. If they were to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then... On the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There is no need for questions. The only need there is is of punishment, of the judgment that is is required. But He doesn't demand what is required. He shows His grace by asking questions. There's no need to ask questions unless His intent is to teach, to correct, to restore. And by doing so, He shows us that that is what He wants. To teach and to correct and to restore these human beings back into a relationship with Him. And so the questions themselves are gracious. And God comes to us today and He asks the same questions as many of us are caught in sin. All of us have sinned. And yet many of us are in a place of hiding away from God's presence in many different ways. And He's drawing us out of that hiding with the same gentle leading. The same gentle questions. Let's look at these three questions. Really, there's four, but two of them go together. The first one is this. Where are you? Where are you? Verse 9, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now, let's, be, let's state the obvious. God is not asking this for informational purposes. He knows where Adam and Eve are. It's not a question of location. Where are you? It's a question of self-realization. Do you know where you are? Do you realize what's going on in this situation? Do you see that you're trying to hide from Almighty God? Do you understand what's happening here? Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, Great pastor and theologian He wrote a little book called "Temptation." and he describes in that book, he says, "When we sin, God is quite unreal to us." I think that's really powerful. Think about that. When we sin, God is quite unreal to us. it 's as though God doesn't exist to us. We believe a different reality. This would be better This would would satisfy me. This would be the thing that would bring everything together in my life. And so you put away the reality of God and you believe a different reality. God is unreal to us. But God's question jolts us back into reality. Where are you? Is it true that you live in the sanctuary of God that this whole creation is His Dwelling place. Do you know that when you hide from God, it is both foolish and tragic? It's foolish. Like the child who believes that she's invisible just because she closes her eyes. Is like hiding in the place where God dwells. The whole earth is His sanctuary. It's His dwelling place. As Hebrews 4.13 says, no creature is hidden from His sight, But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. There is no hiding from God, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. There is no hiding from Him. It's foolishness to think so. All of us are naked and exposed before Him all the time. It's foolish, but it's also tragic. Because Adam is afraid to be with the God who made him to be in an intimate relationship. And so hiding is both foolish, but it's also a great disappointment that the thing that we're made for to be with God in His presence is something that we run from. How does Adam answer? He answers God with more hiding. Verse 10, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. Now, that may seem like a reasonable response from Adam first, but in fact, in this response, Adam admits, admits to no wrongdoing. He calls attention to the fact, the mere fact that he's naked, that that's the reason why he's hiding. He doesn't go to the act of rebellion itself. He actually goes to the situation that results from the rebellion. This is why I'm hiding. It's not because I sinned against you and did what you said I shouldn't do. It's because I realize that I'm naked. If you want to hide, there's a few strategies that you can follow that Adam and Eve follow here. And this would be the first one. The first strategy of deep hiding would be this. Focus on the results of your sin, not the rebellion itself. You think about a kid who's carelessly throwing a baseball in his house inside and even though it's against his parents' rules and he breaks a window and when the kid is confronted he says, well, you know, really the window should be stronger. That's the real problem here. In fact, he's only modestly sorrow, sorrowful. He's only a little bit sorrowful until he realizes that it's his own allowance who's going to pay for this. Then he's really sorrowful. Because it's the situation that is sorrowful. It's the results that are sorrowful. And here, what Adam does when he says, I hid because I was naked, he's saying the real problem here is that I was exposed, not that I was sinful. We can hide in a similar way. And our, our hiding, Can we hear God's gentle question of drawing us out this morning? Where are you? He knows where each one of us is located this morning. That's not the question. The question is, do you have that self-realization? Do you know that you live on the earth that He created? That He is very real? And even though God can seem to us to be unreal. Even though our sin can seem to create for a moment a separate reality, the fact that God is unreal to you does not mean that God is not real. It just means that you're not with it. As Hebrews has told us, every single one of us is exposed to Him and we must give an account. He could leave us in that place He could have restarted. But his gentle question comes and asks, where are you? He wants to draw us out. He wants to bring us to Himself. He wants us not to be afraid of our exposure, but to embrace it and come back into His presence. Where are you? The second question is again a gentle leading to Adam. Who told you? That's what he asks in verse 11. Two related questions He said, "Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat?" And where the first question, "Where are you?" is a question of self-realization, This is the question of source, meaning this: Do you know where your sin is coming from? The source of your sin. He gives like a softball question. In fact, it's a leading question. Who told you you were naked? God knows about the conversation with the serpent. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you? A leading question. Leading straight to the answer. Yes. But it's like that silence when I heard the slurping milk. It's like, is there any other way that I can hide? Is there anything else I can do? And in fact... Adam does not take the softball question. He uses it as an opportunity for more hiding. Two more strategies for deep hiding. The first one is this, blaming others. Which is what, in fact, he does. And Eve does as well in verse 12. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. (coughs) Instead of coming clean, both Adam and Eve passed the buck. And this is a further example of hiding. The reason, they say, for my sin is someone else. Adam blames Eve. Bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, the very gift of God, the person corresponding to him, Made in the image of God. The one that he was so enthralled with. He is willing, even though God is giving him a leading question which shows that God Himself knows that that's exactly what's happened. Even though it's so obvious, he's willing just to hide a little bit longer to throw her completely under the bus. To say it is her that brought this in. And Eve does the same thing. It is this serpent She does the oldest blaming trick in the book. The devil made me do it. The reason for my sin is someone else. But that's not the case. That's a way of hiding. The reason for our sin is ourselves. This is so easy to do. It's so subtle. Even this week, I lost my temper one of my boys I have three boys and one of them um, got a flash of my anger this week and I cooled off and I apologized to them within 30 minutes apologized to them but even in my apology I noticed hiding probably because I was studying this passage right I might not have seen it otherwise that's one of those graces that you get for studying the scriptures every week Because when I said I'm sorry, I added then, I'm sorry that I spoke to you that way. But I just want you to listen to me. First part, good. Second part, hiding. Be okay if I gave some space in between it. Obviously, I can address a separate problem separately, but in addressing my anger, I was also addressing they're not listening. Implying that if they had listened, then it, then the anger wouldn't be there ever. That that's really the source. That's their fault. My anger is your fault. But I was apologizing for my anger, not for their not listening. It's so easy for us to do this, to find different ways of passing the buck to someone else to make them realize that they're the source of the problem. And it's as old as time itself to pass it, to say the fault is actually somewhere else. But there's a third strategy that he does here for hiding. Maybe you caught it in verse 12. He doesn't just blame others. He blames God Himself. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. There's a deep implication there, isn't there? You gave her to me. Really, you know, if you hadn't given her to me, we wouldn't be in this situation. Come to think of it, if there was no tree of knowledge of good and evil, if you hadn't set up that test for us, then we wouldn't be here, would we? Actually, when you think about it, if you hadn't created the Garden of Eden and you hadn't brought in existence itself, then there would be no existence for me to fall from which is the way that we can sometimes think a twisted kind of philosophy that exists out there. It basically blames God for existence. The fact that evil things are there, the fact that anybody has a hard experience, God must be to blame for that. What does the Bible say? James chapter 1, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. That's a twisted way that we hide. That's what it is. To say that it is God's fault or to imply that it is some higher power's fault or some higher system's fault is a way that we hide. And in fact, what the Scriptures tell us is that creation, the fruit... The boundaries, but also the freedom, the relationships, everything that God has given us are gifts. The fact that the gift can be abused, misused, or be used for sin and fall apart does not make the gift giver at fault. It's actually just a way that we hide. Because it gives us comfort to blame something that is bigger than ourselves. And we can put this on different things other than God's name himself. Sometimes we do this with other things. We blame genetics. The reason the way that I am, my sinful inclinations, is because I was born this way. The reason that I am the way that I am is because of the family that I was born into. The reason the way way that I am is the way that it is is because I didn't have resources or because I was raised differently or any number of other things. Now, hear me when I say that. Those things affect our lives. The world, the flesh, and the devil—every single one of those things is at play. And there is something called the world, and there are sinful systems that oppress us. There are victims. There are um, experiences that we have that have to do with other people's sinfulness. Absolutely, what we're talking about here is the flesh. It's it's our own sin. And from the perspective of that, from Genesis chapter 3, we see that there is a real tendency to hide behind the things that we believe in or trust in that are higher than us. To say that really the source of our sin isn't us ourselves, it is from something else. Even though Adam didn't respond to this obvious hint, God persists with the third gracious question. He asks Eve, what have you done? Verse 13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Where are you is the question of self-realization. Who told you is the question of source. This question is the question of effects. Do you know the implications? Do you realize what has to happen now? Do you know how profoundly lost you are? I've been using that word lost so much this morning. and I thought about it this week. It's impossible to hear that now without thinking about that ABC show, Lost. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw that. I know this isn't really relevant right now. It's like a decade old. But... I'm sure many of you saw Lost. And if you remember the show, it's a deserted island show. There's a plane crash and all the people are lost on this island, but it becomes clear very soon that it's not just a story of rescue in a physical sense. There's lots of philosophical things going on here. There's a a smoke monster on the island that seems to stand for something. There's an old history of scientific experiment, the Dharma Initiative, that's happened at some unknown time. There's all these mysteries, there's all these intrigue, there's all these things that have happened and we think all of these things will come together at one point. Everything is leading somewhere. Everything will fit together. But after 6 seasons, we realized that one of the main things that was lost in the show was the plot. <laughs> I know some people liked the ending, but they're wrong. There was no answers. One reviewer said it this way, we worked under the valid assumption that all these questions had answers. All these mysteries, you know, all these things that we didn't understand. Where is this monster coming from? What's going on here? Of course, this does not mean that we would like the answers, but it was a risk we were willing to take. We just wanted answers. That's why we watched the show. And we were trusting enough to wait six years to be satisfied, but such was not the case. At the conclusion of last night's episode, the horrible reality surfaced. That which we all fear in places we don't like to go became a reality. The writers did not know the answers either. I mean, that's powerful, right? There's so much mystery in the world. There's so many things we want to understand and to think that maybe there isn't answers to them at all. Do you know what you have done are you able to see how this will spin out are you able to understand the implications of this story and where it's going to take you when we come to this story the story that we're talking about the true story of everything the writer does know the answer he knows what the implications are and he ends the story the way that he wants to in this story We are lost, incapable of coming back to the Father, incapable of coming into His presence and saying what we did is wrong, unable even with all the hints and all of His encouragement. There is no redemption here for Adam and Eve yet. Certainly not from themselves. They show no remorse yet. All they are trying to do is escape from God. But even in that, in their lostness, God seeks them and He finds them. A question that we could say summarizes the Scripture is, do you know what you have done? The rest of the story of Scripture is about solving this problem. But there's another question that really shows us the conclusion of the story which is not just do you know what you have done, but do you know what He has done? Even though we're profoundly lost, we are found in Him. The answer to the question, what is this that has been done, is that death is introduced into the world. Three kinds of death as we close today. There is physical death. When Adam and Eve sin they bring physical death into this world on the day that you eat of it you shall surely die adam and eve did die they didn't die right away that's god's mercy and his grace to them in fact they lived 900 some odd years and why that's so merciful and gracious you see they repopulate the earth, they establish the human race and they show that God is not interested in a restart so much as He is interested in repair. He could have wiped the slate clean, but He continues with His people showing His grace, but they do die and so do we because of this sin. It is appointed for man once to die. After that, the judgment. There is physical death. There is also here, secondly, a theological death what is this that you have done? Well, you've plunged the entire human race subsequent to your life into sin and hiding. Romans tells us that this death is not just a physical death, it is a death that spreads into the hearts and souls of people everywhere. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6:23 is doesn't just mean there a physical death. He means a spiritual death. Romans 3.11 Now no one is righteous. No one seeks after God. In their hiding, in their running from Him, now we find ourselves hiding and running from Him. It's in us. Romans 5.12 Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. There is a death here that happens, not just for Adam and Eve, for everyone that comes from them. There's lastly an experiential death. As Adam and Eve in verse 8 hide, it says that they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. The word presence there just means face. They hide from the face of God. And it sets up a pattern throughout Scripture of avoiding the face of God. Something to hide from. For instance, Jonah. If you know the story, when he was called to go to Nineveh, he gets in a boat and he goes to Tarshish, the opposite direction. And it says that he is fleeing from the face of God. We flee from the face of God. There's a death of relationship and intimacy. Something greater or something in addition to our physical death and our theological death, our experience of God dies. In this story, it's not just about what we have done though, it's about what He has done. And in Jesus Christ, all three of these deaths are resurrected. They're given new life again. We are lost, but in His seeking and drawing us out, we are found again. He restores us. Let me read just a few more verses of Romans chapter 5 to you. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. And the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Paul's logic is that there are there's one sense in which the trespasses and the grace of God are the same. In this one sense, they are the same because they come through one man. In Adam, all sin, and in Christ, all are saved, or have hope of salvation. But in that sense alone, they are the same. In every other sense, grace is greater than than sin it is greater than the trespass which is easier to break something or to mend it it's much harder to put something back together that has been broken than it is to break it in the first place and so while the one trespass brought many transgressions and it spread through the four corners of the world what Christ has done is much harder and much more beautiful he has brought all those trespasses back into one place into himself and nailed them to the cross. So while the trespass is powerful, the cure is even greater. The grace is greater than our sin. And in Christ and what He has done for us in His death and His resurrection, all three deaths are put away. They all still exist temporarily, but they all are restored eventually. The physical pain of death is still there, but death now has no sting, no victory. Because our death now results if we are in Christ in the resurrection from the dead and the life everlasting as we will confess in just a moment. The theological death has no bearing for us, though while it's true that we have a sinful nature, that we are born into sin, That no longer has any bearing on us because we are made alive together with Christ. We've been given new life. We are no longer identified with the old. We are in Christ. And now, even though the experiential death still exists and it's still hard and still we have a tendency to hide in our sin and flee from the presence of God, we need not do that anymore because we are in Christ. And we have been restored. And we don't have to hide from His presence. In fact, in a beautiful twist in the book of Colossians, we see that no longer do we hide from God, but we are hidden in God. His grace enfolds us, cherishes us, covers us, protects us. We're not hiding from Him, we're hiding in Him. And so God comes to us today in our hiding, whether that's something that you can easily identify or not. All of us have this tendency to hide from Him. But He is gentle. He calls us out with these questions. And He causes us to examine ourselves. What is this? Where are you? Who told you? Do you know what you've done? And if you answer according to what we've said this morning, and find that the answers ultimately come in Christ and being hidden with Christ in God, then you have no reason to fear or to hide anymore. You can boldly come into the throne room of grace covered, hidden, with Christ in God. Let's pray.